0: If you have your Bibles with you, turn to the very last book of the Old Testament. And it's not an Italian prophet. You don't pronounce it Malachi. It's Malachi. Some of you know, because I don't make it a secret... That I have a smoker and I love smoking ribs and brisket and mac and cheese. And actually, last year I did smoked cream cheese and took it to each of our neighbors. And uh, you may know that I have a grill and I love to grill stuff. Actually, I have two grills because sometimes you got to use charcoal and other times you use gas. And so I have one of each. Lately, Charlene has been experimenting some amazing things with uh, her Instapot. She's made some amazing stuff in her Instapot and uh, also in uh, an air fryer. Uh, we had some Brussels sprouts last night in an air fryer that were like spot on. They were charred and crispy, yet still had that little bit of umami taste, you know. Can you tell I watch the Food Network? Uh And we just enjoy cooking and eating what we cook and inviting people over. Let's consider a scenario. Suppose we invited one of you to come over to our home for dinner, and you're aware that I have a smoker. You're aware about the grill. You're aware about the Instapot. Uh, you've heard tale about Sundays putting the roast and the potatoes and the carrots and the crock pot and letting them simmer all morning until we come home and it just melts in your mouth. You're aware of all of that. And so you're looking forward. In fact, you're, you're a polite guest, and so you reach out to Charlene and you say, Hey, what can I bring? And Charlene says, Don't worry about it. we got it all covered Just come. So you pull into our driveway, and you don't see the smoker. And you come into the house, and the table's all set, but the crock pot's not on the counter. And you kind of sidle over to the window at the kitchen and kind of look out and say, oh, the grill's still covered. You don't smell anything, any food emanating, scents emanating from the oven my iron skillet is not anywhere to be found. The air fryer is turned off. And we talk for a while, and Charlene says, well, it's time to eat. And you're thinking, okay, this is a Grubhub menu, a meal. You know, maybe, they're, maybe they're having Lou Malnati's deliver. Well, we could deal with that. And to your surprise and chagrin, Charlene goes to the refrigerator and starts pulling out Tupperware containers. And opening the lid, yeah, I think this is good. Sniffing it, this is good. She pulls out last week's asparagus that were on the grill. They're a little limp, but they're reheatable. And all of a sudden, you find us putting stuff in the microwave and nuking it again and, and setting it out. And you're thinking to yourself, A... I think this, is, this meal is going to require a McDonald's run afterwards. And B, really? They're giving us leftovers? What do you say to leftovers? Wow, this is a really denture-friendly meal. Everything is soft. You know, and, and in your heart, you're thinking, this is, this is the best they could do for us? Now, I get it. Some leftovers are great. I mean, I'm a next-day spaghetti guy, you know. Spaghetti the next day is great. I've had spaghetti for breakfast sometimes. But if I'm inviting someone to my home to give them a meal, I want to give them my best. And giving someone just leftovers. Now, if you've stayed at our house for three days... Yeah, you're getting leftovers. But if you're coming for a dinner where I want to honor you, I want to give you my best. I thought about leftovers as I read through the book of Malachi. In Jerusalem, some 400 years before the birth of Christ, one more prophet spoke up. His name was Malachi. By the time Malachi comes along, the temple is complete. By the time Malachi comes along, the walls of the city are rebuilt. Jerusalem is secure again. Life was happening. There was a sense of renewal, a sense of we're back. But a problem had developed. The more secure the people became, the more it seemed they didn't think they needed God we will see this morning we're going to survey this prophecy in fact the more secure the people became the more they began to think maybe God's not as great as he's cracked up to be maybe God really isn't as necessary as we once thought maybe we can make life work on our own terms it seems to be going pretty good right now and in fact the book of Malachi has a parallel chapter in the Bible. It is believed by many scholars that the last chapter of Nehemiah, chapter 13, corresponds with Malachi. In Nehemiah 13, Nehemiah has been gone from the city for a while He came and helped them build the walls in 50 days and everything else, and everything got going. He set things up. There was celebration and all, but then he had to go back. He was the cupbearer to the king. He had duties. This was just a kind of a, a work team trip. So he goes home for a while. He does his stuff. He comes back to visit, and he finds things in a shambles spiritually. When Nehemiah gets back every day on the Sabbath, the gates of the city are open, and commerce is happening. And trade is happening and people are making money and the Sabbath was supposed to be the day that they shut the gates to the city. The Sabbath was the day that you did no work. You honored God. He found out that this guy named Tobiah had actually moved into one of the storerooms of the temple. Nehemiah goes ballistic, he literally grabs some of the leaders and he drags them back like behind the church and he just wails on them. He says, I pulled their beard and I beat them because they were so outside of what God wanted. And it's to those people that were all about commerce and trade and themselves, that Malachi speaks The prophecy of Malachi is very unique in its approach. It's like a series of brief conversations. In fact, I looked through this and went through it, and I, I come up with six basic conversations that we're going to talk, survey, real quickly here today. At the beginning of every conversation, God makes a statement or a question. It's kind of an allegation against the way that they are living. And the people push back. They push back. Well, go with me. We'll start right here. Chapter 1, verse 1. I'll try to put a little bit of reality in the text. A prophecy. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, How have you loved us? Just stop right there. Can you imagine going to someone that you care deeply about and say, you know, I love you. Oh, yeah? Prove it. (laughs) You talk about a buzzkill. I love you. Yeah, right. And that's what they say. God says, I've loved you. How? How have you loved us? (laughs) Remember where they are. Remember what has happened, and God says, Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I love Jacob, but Esau I've hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. God says, in these next three verses, God says, I chose you. I have loved you, I chose you. I didn't have to choose Abraham. I didn't have to accept Isaac. I didn't have to choose Jacob, but I did because I love you. I didn't have to have Esau's land wiped out, but I did because I wanted you to know I love you. God says I've acted in love, and and the word that is used often is covenant love. Covenant love is not romantic love, it's the love of promise when Moses is leading the children of Israel out of Egypt and they are just rebellious like you wouldn't believe. And time and again, God says, I want to wipe them out. And Moses says, no, you can't because you promised Abraham. And Moses appeals to God's covenant love. Now, what God is doing is testing Moses. Are you that convinced in my covenant love? yes. And what God says to his people in Malachi, I think he says to you and me later on in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The first message of the book of Malachi is simply this. Believe it or not, God loves you. Believe it or not, God loves you. God's love for you is not based on anything you have done. It's not based on anything you have earned. It's not based on anything you do now. Believe it or not, God loves you unconditionally. He loves you unconditionally as you are he wants you to grow he wants you to change he wants you to be the best you can be for him but in this moment no matter how you're feeling no matter how worthy or unworthy you feel god loves you and the people of israel went prove it and malachi could have gone further back but when he talks about choosing jacob it's it's that flow of the book of genesis all the way through god's leading them out of captivity. God's returning them back to the land after 70 years. See, the problem Malachi faced was the people had grown so cold in their love for God, they could not believe he really loved them. The second conversation picks up in chapter 1, verse 6. Let me summarize it this way how much we love god is seen in how we worship god by the time malachi comes along the priestly system had disintegrated it wasn't nehemiah wasn't gone from jerusalem that long and things had started to disintegrate and so malachi speaking for god calls it out because god sees their actions he sees it dis disrespect that he's being shown, the dishonor. So he says this, verse 6 of chapter 1, A son honors his father, and a slave his master. If I'm a father, where's the honor due me? If I'm a master, where's the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? God says... I gave you specific instructions in what was acceptable in bringing to me for sacrifice. And you're bringing blind, lame, diseased animals. Animals, if you presented them to a human ruler for tribute, he would reject. You're bringing me your leftovers. You're worshiping me with your leftovers. God says, he goes on, he says, Oh, that one of you, verse 10, would shut the temple doors so you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. God says, I would rather you just shut down the entire temple worship, close the doors, than to bring half-hearted worship to me. They began to see worship as a burden, not as a blessing. God promises, he says, my name will be great among the nations, and it should be great among the people he's chosen. What a sobering reminder. Does God get my best? Now, I realize there are times when my best is just like, okay, I got out of bed today. But does God get my best? You know, I was fortunate enough to be able to watch my father pastor churches where he was largely the solo pastor. And I learned from my dad. He kept, he kept hours. He, he went to the office. He, he, he believed he was accountable to God for what he did. You see, I, I've known people in my position to say things like, nobody really cares what I do Monday through Saturday, as long as I bring a pretty decent sermon on Sunday. Well, then I'm not giving God my best. I'm not giving you my best, if that's the way I live. I'm giving you my leftovers. This whole series, if you were here 16 years ago in 2006, I preach through this Minor prophet series. I've got all the notes. I went back and looked at my notes. I've repented for some things I said in 2006. Uh, you do that sometimes. Like, oh, I said that? Oh, I shouldn't have said that. But you know what? I wanted to bring fresh sermons to you. Because I want to give you my best. Does God get your best? You give God your best when you love your family like God loves you. You give God your best when when you thank Him for the job that He's given you. I give God my best when I'm the best employee I can be. I give God my best when I'm a good citizen. I give God my best when I'm the best student I can be. I give God my best when I'm a good neighbor to my neighbors. I want to say this very, very carefully. I am very thankful for our current technology that allows some who for very sound reasons can't meet with us on a Sunday, but they can at least be a part of what's going on online. I am thankful for that. But I want us to be very, very careful that we don't get so much into the habit of sitting in our living room in our slippers with a cup of coffee and watching online that we fail to remember God designed us for community. We were designed to be together. As uh, you know, A few weeks ago, I had to miss, and you got to watch me on video because I had this little bout with COVID. And as I was sitting there in my living room, And I wrote about this on Facebook, if you follow me on Facebook. I felt disconnected. I felt, I didn't get to see you. I didn't get to say hi to you. I didn't get to tussle the hair of the little ones. Uh, You know, one of our little guys today wanted to show me how fast he could run in his new shoes. I missed that. Because I was designed by God for relationship, just like you were designed for connection. And the connection online is a substitute, but it's not the same as being here. It's God getting my best. Malachi doesn't let up. Chapter 2 begins with, and most of chapter 2 deals with character. You see, the fact of the matter is our character matters to God. And so Malachi continues with the priest. The reason he's focusing on the priest is because in that system, the priest was the mediator between the people and God. Now, Jesus is going to come along, and he's going to become the mediator. And Paul would write, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But until that time, the priest stood there as the one representing God to the people and representing the people to God. So their character mattered. You see, we tend to follow the example of leadership more than we tend to follow the words of those who lead. Quick story. Years ago, a friend of mine watched that in action. Uh, my friend was with their cousin, and he had just gotten his driver's license, and everybody was going to celebrate, so my, the, the cousin's dad said, why don't you drive me and, and your other cousins, there were about four of them, Drive us down to the ice cream parlor. I'm buying ice cream for everybody. So the kid gets in the car. They take off. and, And if you've ever been the parent in the passenger seat when your child is driving, you long for the driver's education break, don't you? You're pushing on that floorboard like somehow you can stop that car. And dad was pushing on the floorboard, and the car wasn't stopping. And finally said, son, you're going too fast. Dad, I know what I'm doing. Son, really, you need to slow down. Dad, I know what I'm doing. Seriously slow down. Dad, if you say one more thing about my driving, I'm pulling over and walking home. Son, slow down. Pulls the car over, puts it in park, gets out, slams the door, starts walking home. The dad, this friend of mine said, the dad walked around, got in the car, slammed the door, put his seatbelt on, jammed the car into drive, hit the gas, and spun gravel everywhere and went flying down the road to the ice cream parlor faster than his son drove. Where did the son learn to drive like that? They didn't teach him that in driver's education. It's that old idea, more is caught than taught, and God is telling the priests, the spiritual leaders in the community, you better listen to me. Or you're going to be cursed. You're going to have punishment. Look at the language in chapter 2, verse 3. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will smear your faces with dung from your festival sacrifices. You will be carried off with it. He says, you're going to be totally disgraced if you don't listen up and change your character in how you follow me. Verse 7, he tells them, That instead, that they're going to be despised for the lips of the priest ought to preserve knowledge because he's the messenger of the Lord God Almighty, and people seek instruction from his mouth. That's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to preserve knowledge, you're supposed to help people see who I am, but the priests weren't doing that. He says, You've turned from the way, verse 8, by your teaching, you've caused many to stumble. You violated the covenant with Levi so I have caused you to be despised and humiliated. He goes on, he says in verses 10 through 16 that their actions have led Judah to be unfaithful to God. We see that in Nehemiah. In Nehemiah, people were marrying other uh, individuals from other countries that were worshiping other gods and bringing that in, saying, well, you know what? It's that same idea that we've seen throughout the minor prophets. Yahweh's good. But I better have a plan B. So let's marry somebody who worships Baal, and we'll put Baal on the shelf. And let's mar- marry someone who, who worships this God, and we'll put them on the shelf. Because yeah, Yahweh's good, but we better have a couple backup plans. And God says, no, you're leading them to be unfaithful. And they cry, and they ask God why he doesn't bless them. You know, look at this uh, Verse 13, another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you ask, why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You've been unfaithful to her, and though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. So what was happening in Malachi's time was not only were they being unfaithful to God, but because of all of this other stuff, the men were saying, you know what, it's okay if I'm unfaithful to my wife. If covenant love doesn't matter with God, it doesn't matter anywhere. The unfaithfulness of leadership opened the door for unfaithfulness in marriage. There's something we need to understand in this section because oftentimes this passage has been translated incorrectly and has brought more pain than it really should. You see, some of your translations in Malachi 2.16 will say, I hate divorce. That's really not a good translation. That would actually make God contradictory. Because in the book of Jeremiah, God issues a certificate of divorce to the nation Israel because of their unfaithfulness. It was a patriarchal society. What do I mean by that? Women had virtually no rights. Men had all the rights. So when it came to a marriage that wasn't working, a wife had nothing. She had no means of employment. She had nothing, and so... If a husband divorced his wife, she had only one recourse to either go back to her family and live as a widow, or become a beggar, or worse yet, become a prostitute. Otherwise, she would starve to death. And so God says this, The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect. In that society, God was saying, leaders, spiritual leaders, don't lead the people in unfaithfulness. Family leaders, don't walk away from your wives and do violence to the covenant you promised. God is calling all leadership to be faithful in their dealings because God cares about our character. God does not hate divorced people but God grieves over what brings a marriage to an end and it does harm to all involved I know many many people good friends friends I love dearly whose marriages blew up for all kinds of reasons and I've never talked to a one of them that says pastor Scott that was such a good time I want to do that again the people I know whose marriages have ended in divorce would not wish that on their worst enemy. It's, it's painful. And so what God is saying is he's calling his people, using this bad situation to call his people to be faithful. See, when our character is not what God desires, it does have a negative effect on every relationship. Malachi's not done. He goes into our next argument. begins in chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord. And he's pleased with them. Where's the God of justice? Malachi says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in the former days years true justice matters to God God says I'm weary of your words and they push back prove it where are we wearying you Uh, the question they question God's justice They, they wonder if God's really able to bring about justice is God really who he says he is is God really able And what we have in response is actually a prophecy where Malachi kind of sees, as we've talked about those mountain peaks, he sees down the road. It's a prophecy of what we find in the New Testament. I will send my messenger to prepare the way. You could look to Matthew chapter three verses 1 to three, as Matthew presents John the Baptist, and he says he's the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 43 and the fulfillment of what we have here in Malachi 3:1. Uh, in a sense, what Malachi is saying in representing God is, "I got your justice right here. and when I come, you're not going to be able to stand it. You know, when, when I come, I'm going to refine you like a refiner's fire. When, when, when I come, I'm, I'm going to scrub you clean like a launderer's soap. You're going to know justice. And, and the point I think God is making is, yes, true justice matters to God, but the task is you don't have to wait until the refiner's fire. You can change your life now and be a person of justice. Be obedient to God today. You see, it's very easy to get lulled into sleep and thinking, you know, things aren't getting any better. In fact, things seem to be getting worse. I wonder if, I wonder if God really is there. I wonder if God's really able. I wonder if God's really going to change things. And The reality is God says, don't live life on your own terms because I am coming. And I am going to hold everyone accountable. Paul uses a word picture in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15. It's that word picture of the refiner's fire. My grandpa in Kentucky for a time was a blacksmith. Now, by the time I came along, he was over 90 years old because my dad is the youngest of 11. And so Grandpa Howington wasn't doing much smithing at the time. Uh, But knowing that he was a blacksmith always intrigued me about that. I've watched blacksmiths work in different places. and, And, you know, true steel, true iron, You can heat it up until it's red hot, and you can bend it, and you can turn it. It's it's amazing what you can do with it. That word picture is kind of what Paul uses. You see, true gold, when you put it through the refiner's fire, all the impurities rise to the top, and they scrape it off. Same with silver. And Paul says, one day, God's going to hold us accountable. The God of real justice is going to try us. He's going to hold us accountable by his true divine justice. And he's going to take all of our works, the good stuff we've done, the bad stuff, and he's going to throw it all into the refiner's fire. And you know, some of the good stuff you and I think we've done, we may have done it not for God but for ourselves. And God says that's going to be like wood, hay, and stubble. We used to heat with wood. A friend of mine said, don't ever try to heat with willow wood. We call it woof wood. You put it in the fire and woof, it's gone. And, uh, but he said, that's what all of our works are going to be that were done selfishly and not for God. They're going to go into the fire and woof, they'll be gone. But those things that we did, sometimes the things that nobody noticed, the things that nobody saw, the things that we did and said, you know, God, I just, this is my little offering to you. Those are the things that are going to be refined and be more beautiful like gold and silver and precious metal. God says, I got your justice here, people of Malachi. I got your justice, people here, Pleasant Hill Community Church. I've got your justice, people here, 2022. And, and I am going to hold you accountable. So don't doubt the justice of God. God says in chapter 3, verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, well, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. God says make sure you don't hold back what is truly God's. You see, God reminds His people, first of all, He doesn't change. You know, that, that should be something that causes us to uh, feel comfort. Our God doesn't change. Our God doesn't change what He's, who, His character. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He, He's steady. He's sure. You can count on Him. I don't change, she says, the core principles that I have given you from the very beginning, Israel, that you have disobeyed from the very beginning, are still there. I don't change. Those core principles, Jesus summarized, love the God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. That doesn't change. And so God says, here's the deal, and if I were to circle and say, here's a key verse in the book of Malachi, it would be right here. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. You see, we can't say to God, well, I'll do that if you make the first move. He already made the first move. He created us. He sustains us. He already made the first move. He's already done that. And so we always have to adjust to God. And they question him, and God says, well, okay, here's how, okay. if you really want to know, if you're not smart enough to see how you've strayed, I'll give you one thing. Quit robbing me. What? Come on. How do we rob you? Now, I want you to notice something. Here the word tithes mm-hmm. and offerings are plural. In the book of Leviticus, God called his people to bring a tenth of everything produced to the Lord. In restating that law in Deuteronomy, Moses explains the reason in Deuteronomy 14:22 and 23. He says, "Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of our grain of your grain, new wine and olive oil and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord, your God, at the place He will choose as a dwelling for His name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always." See, the purpose that God set up the whole system of tithes and offering was not that God needed them. It was a way that they were to bring this all together to God, a place He chose, and they were to actually partake of it and eat of it as a way of remembering that everything they had was God's. The idea is giving. of giving is not somehow we give so that we can double our investment and God will give us back. The idea of giving whether, and and, and hear me out, A, a tithe specifically means 10%, but don't think that once you've given 10%, you can spend the other 90. It's an idea of being managers of what God's given you. A book I've referenced before, How We Discovered Financial Freedom at Harvard Business School. I wish I could remember the authors off the top of my head, but You can look it up on Amazon. Two guys that said, we began to change the way we thought. We thought, it's not how much do I have to give God. How much do I need to truly live on? And they said, that just changed their whole thinking. There's a difference between my needs and my wants. I need good, healthy food. Sometimes I want a great big juicy steak, but I don't need that to live. I love to play golf, but I don't need, I never need to play golf, ever. I enjoy it, but I don't need it. But I need to make sure I spend time with my wife. I need to make sure I'm spending time with my kids and my family. The idea of giving helps me step back and say, what do I need and what can I release to God? And and God says, you are robbing me. You are holding back. And when there's something that is God's, he says, don't hold it back. When you and I don't give, we rob God of the opportunity of showing him how much he provides for us. Real quick story. I know I've told it before. There was once a time where Charlene was not working outside the home. And she came to me once and she goes, and, and I would, you know, every week I'd get paid. And and so part of our budget was this is, this amount, we called it grocery money, you know. And so Charlene got her grocery money and she came to me and she goes, I'm just feeling convicted. And I said, okay, what's going on? She goes, I just feel God wants me to give part of my grocery money in an offering. I want I think he wants me to to tithe that was the word she used. And and being the spiritual man that I am, I said to her, you can't do that. She goes, "Why not?" I said, "Well, that's a double tithe. We can't do that. I've already we've already given on that paycheck." You, I lost that argument. So Charlene just started doing that. Every every week she would you know give just put her a little bit in the offering and, and all and, and didn't think anything about it. One day, a friend called. Now we had three kids at home, you know, kids go through stuff, you know, and this friend called, she goes, "Hey, um, I'm making some changes, and I have some pretty nice glasses and drinkware, drink things that you know tumblers and middle size and ju- would you would you like those?" Charlene goes, Well, why don't you bring him over and we'll see. Oh, my goodness. This gal brought in like two paper boxes full of top of the line Tupperware drinking glasses. Believe it or not, some of them are still in our cupboard to this day. And Charlene just like was blown away like, Wow, you can't outgive God. She was giving her a little bit and God said, here, let me just give you all these glasses. You know you need them. You know you're running low. I don't know how they disappear in your house. Uh, it's a mystery to me too, Charlene, but you know, you need more. And here they are. It's, it was amazing. When you give, you provide God the opportunity to show him how much he provides for you. And when you choose not to give, you're saying, God, I don't need you to show me. I can take care of myself. Don't hold back what is truly God's. The rest of chapter 3 and all the way through chapter 4, verse 6, leaves us with one final thought. Remember to honor the character of God. This last interchange begins in verse 13 of chapter 3. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. You ask, what have we said against you? You've said it's futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out His requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper. And even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. And God says, you've basically said it's worthless to serve God. And you know what? What we've noticed, people that don't serve God, they seem to get along better. Someday read Psalm 73. Asaph said that. He said, my foot almost slipped because I looked at the wicked and they, make, they have money and they're never sick and they seem to get along and, and, and maybe it's wor- not worth following you, Lord. He comes to his senses. Go back and read it. He said they, said they test God and, and, and the reality is Malachi is saying your thinking is warped. It's backwards. God's rewards are not immediate. They're not always immediately seen, but they are sure. And sometimes prosperity is not the blessing you might think it is. Powerball. Did you get your Powerball ticket? How many times did you hear that? Do you know you are more likely to get struck by lightning than you are to win the Powerball lottery? And what's more last the last one was what 2 billion or something prosperity instant prosperity is a curse well documented studies show us that 70% of lottery winners end up broke in 7 years and some have had their lives threatened the point is simply When you and I begin to think that there's a better way than following God, even when it's hard, we are going to find ourselves on the wrong side of God's equation. Verses 16 to 18 give us that glimpse. Those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in His presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored His name. All of a sudden, there were some, there was a remnant, there were a few that said, we've got to change. We've got to follow God. And on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And Malachi finishes his prophecy in chapter 4 with a reminder that God is going to bring his justice and we need to be ready. God promised in 3.1 to send his messenger to prepare the way. And, and John the Baptist, it's shown in the New Testament as that messenger calling in the wilderness. But look at chapter 4 and verse 2. He says, but for you who revere my name, you who honor my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like, a, like well-fed calves. God says, here's a select audience. It's you who revere my name, you who trust me. There's going to be a sun of righteousness that's going to rise with healing in its rays or its wings, some say. And I want to submit to you this morning that what we're going to be celebrating during the Advent season is what Malachi prophesied. Jesus is the Son of righteousness. Jesus came preaching, healing. And in the ultimate display of love, he gave his life for our sins. And in a few weeks, we're going to sing a song. We're going to sing, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. And in the third verse, when we sing that, and I will make sure we sing that, there are going to be these words, hail the heaven-born prince of peace, hail the son of righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Charles Wesley was quoting Malachi. Uh, many other passages as well. See, God's not interested in your leftovers, just like you wouldn't be interested in mine. He you wants your best. Now, I understand today, very possible, you've heard all this, and in your heart you're saying, Pastor Scott, right now I feel like leftovers. Right now, I don't even know if there's anything in me that God wants. Can I tell you, God knows. God knows that we struggle. He knows what we need most. And and you know what God wants most? He wants you. No excuses, no pushback. He just wants you. In a minute, we're going to sing a song that one of the lines says, You are strong when you feel weak in your brokenness complete. The point is when we feel like leftovers and we just humbly and in our brokenness say, okay, God, here I am, he fills us with himself. The Holy Spirit can work with that. He can work with our brokenness, and that's where he wants to start. And that's why when we find the promises of the Son of Righteousness, the Jesus who comes with healing, we're reminded healing is not just physical. We need the healing of Jesus' body, soul, and spirit. And it begins when we understand the one that Malachi looked forward to. He came, and we trust him, and we receive him, and we follow him, and we celebrate him. Jesus is the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. Father, a lot here today, I get that. I pray that you will help us in our hearts disseminate the truth of your word and apply it. And may we give you the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.